And, and I think specifically what we're looking at and how do we solve these big questions, that really doesn't work with sound bites. You know, these are very, very big challenges that need very smart people to kind of tease things out and deduce things, you know, and, and kind of open source their brains to the world. That's really what Smarter Markets is about. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This week on What Are Smarter Markets, we dive into the heart of the matter with Josh Crum, the founder and CEO of Abex Technologies. Josh and I will discuss his smart markets vision for how technology can be leveraged to redesign and improve markets to meet society's biggest challenges, including climate change and the energy transition. Well, joining me now is a man who needs no introduction, and that is Josh Crum, the founder of Abex and uh, Smarter Markets. Josh, mate, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. How are you doing? Thanks, Grant. And uh, you know, thanks for being part of this conversation to kick off the year. Oh, I'm delighted to be a part of it. There's, there's so much I can learn from you know, guys like Jeff and yourself. It's been a great privilege for me to be a part of it. So thank you for letting me have the opportunity. After my conversation with Jeff, I was looking forward to talk to you. And a big part of that, I don't think anybody listening to this is going to need an introduction to who Josh Crum is, but I think it would make sense perhaps to talk a little bit about smarter markets you know and, and on the first time you graced your own podcast which is always a great thing i've done that myself on occasion it's it's a, it's a, it's a tricky seat to be in and you pulled it off beautifully but i think um i think letting people understand a bit about what it was that made you start smarter markets what the idea is behind it and and what smarter markets really means to you you know instead of giving you know my own origin story i, I think maybe this is the first time i should give the smarter markets origin story so, you know, funny enough, it, it goes back to a villa in Southeast Asia. I was there with uh, Robert Friedland, uh, uh, you know, a few years back. And, you know, we, we got on the conversation of, you know, what's happening in media and financial journalism. And, and, and actually, in many ways, inspired by, you know, people like yourselves who really brought this sort of alternative media and long form conversation to the, to the finance sphere. I, I, I was talking to Robert and a number of his guests about podcasts and about these conversations. And it was funny enough, you know, Robert actually hadn't listened to a podcast before. <laughs> and so uh, so he gave which is which is not because Robert perpetually lives 10 years into the future. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and he hands me his his Apple iPhone. And of some of you that, that may know Robert's background, actually, he had a lot of influence on Steve Jobs. So and that in itself was, you know, again, there was sort of an irony to all of this. And so the first episode I, I uh, download for him is uh, the Edward Snowden uh, conversation with, uh, you know, with Joe Rogan. And uh, he proceeds to disappear for about, you know, three hours. Right. And I think most of his guests probably didn't like that. But, you know, that that was the origin story of, of Smarter Markets. And, and we, we, we started talking about it. And, you know, and we, we said, you know, look, we, we should do a podcast. And, you know, this this was actually the first first podcast that Robert was ever on was our first episode. And then the first podcast that Jeff Curry was ever on was our, our third episode. And since then, we've also sort of broken some ice with a number of, uh, you know, CEOs and C-suites that have never done the long form conversation before. Uh, so, you know, for me, you know, a, a, anyone that knows me and, and I guess knows me even as a CEO, I am terrible at sound bites. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm much better or not, I wouldn't say better, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm much more in, into having long form conversations and trying to tease out these issues. And, and I think specifically what we're looking at, you know, in these big challenges that, you know, that Jeff also started off his podcast talking about inequality, talking about the energy transition and, and how do we solve these big questions that really doesn't work with sound bites. You know, these are very, very big challenges that need very smart people to kind of tease things out and to do things, you know, and, and kind of open source their brains to the world. So, you know, that that's really what Smarter Markets is about. And and yet again, I had no soundbite, you know, but this is where I want to want to go with smarter markets. I think you're right. I mean, you and I have had uh, several of those long form conversations over the years, and, and I think having flexibility and allowing yourself the time to, as you say, tease these things out, it, it's just a great way to do it. And I, I think we, I think the, the podcast audience is self selecting. You know, the people that actually have the time and the inclination to listen to long form conversations just revel in podcasts because it's it's tough to get that sort of stuff anywhere else but podcasts these days. Absolutely. And, and look, and don't get me wrong. I, I love, you know, listening to also, 
you know, very good analytical, you know, podcasts, you know, I, you know, S&P Platts has a number of them that, you know, that are really, you know, very good analysts that are very well prepared and go through, you know, facts and figures. And, and I think that's also very, very valuable and something that really didn't, you know, exist much, you know, uh, you know, that long ago. So, I mean, I, I think the the medium and, and this availability of information is, is absolutely incredible for the people that want to dig and, and find things. Uh, one other one that I really liked you know, a number of years back, you know, I started watching some of the early YouTube episodes of Blitzscaling uh, with Reed Hoffman. And, you know, it was really, you know, you'd have a YouTube with with 100 views and you get two hour long form conversation with Eric Schmidt while he was the CEO of Google at the time. And so I started, you know, putting my Wall Street, you know, analyst hat on. And I was like, so, you know, most of Wall Street's analyzing sound bites uh, and, you know, very scripted and prepared PRs. And yet here's this two hour conversation about the history of Google and where he thought the re real key strategies and things happened. And I, and I, I think that's pretty incredible that, that that's out there right now. And we just wanted to, you know, because we, we have access to a number of you know, very interesting people in, in the projects that we're working on, you know, that's really what we wanted to dive into. Yeah. Fantastic. I think you guys did a great job with it. I spoke recently with Jeff Curry and, um, as always, it was just a fascinating conversation. You know, Jeff's uh, Jeff's mind is just phenomenal when it comes to the commodity space. A lot of what we talked about was was the energy transition. So I, I want to start with you with a, with a pretty broad question, but I think it, it makes sense to to define this because for a lot of people, they struggle to put this into real terms. So so just for people listening, how would you personally just frame what the energy transition is all about? That's a great question. And, and that's, again, one of, the, one of the keys of smarter markets is about asking big questions rather than sort of projecting answers. You know, because, uh, you know, I think David Greeley, uh, who, who hosted a number of excellent series uh, recently in the first interview you know, where he was the guest, you know, because, you know, we do mix it up a lot. Uh, you know, he, he described it as, you know, do you really want to change the engine, you know, while, while the airplane is still flying or, or you know, do you want to plan things out and, and do it later? You know, the, the big question is, is there such thing as an energy transition? I mean, if, if you think about, you know, the, the path of, of, you know, energy sources and fuel sources as the Industrial Revolution grew, you know, typically we brought on new energy sources, but we never really, you know, other than maybe, you know, whale oil, you know, we, we didn't really ever shrink demand or you know, we, we just added new uh, energies to the mix. So that's the big question is, can we do it this time? You know, and, and how do we do it? Do we need mostly offsets and sinks or, or can we actually, you know, decline, you know, carbon production uh, without, uh, you know, without resulting in energy poverty and so forth. So, you know, that is the big question that, that we want to keep working out on, you know, and, and it's going to take many, many years to work out. Well, obviously one of the big components of, of this particular transition is, the urgency with which it's being you know, mandated now, and the and the and the penalties that are being discussed if we don't get this, so that you know it's it's a little different to have an energy transition with a gun to people's heads. Absolutely, and yeah, like you said, the the gun gun to somebody's head. You know, I think some of the first approaches was just you know finding the choke points in the energy system and, and try to you know cut them off. You know, pipelines or or uh, you know passes or you know and, and that sort of thing. And then, and then on the financial side, you know, you had sort of absolute mandates for divesture, you know, just cut, you know, institutional shareholding of anyone that owns anything that's, you know, quote unquote dirty. And I think that that's, you know, that's going to turn out to be, a, a you know, again, very problematic as well. So where I am hopeful, though, is over the last, you know, probably year and a half, maybe two years, there really has been a very big study and a very chain, you know, a very a big internal change in the way a lot of uh, companies are going about this. And, and I would even say, uh, you know, well, there was a big, you know, big wake up, of course, with the energy shocks in, in Europe and Asia that, uh, in, in 20, you know, in late 2021 here, that maybe absolute divesture is not the right you know, path, because then you start hitting, you know, real energy security issues. So, you know, this is an evolving conversation. And, and of course, you know, the, you know, there's the sort of the, you know, again, the, the gun to somebody's head on one side, but there's also the, you know, we don't want to get, you know, we don't want to freeze in winter or we, or we don't want to, uh, you know, limit fertilizer production, uh, you know, because people will starve. So I think both of those realities are now on the table and it was sort of always one or the other. Um, and I think that's actually what's going to make 2022 so fascinating as we, again, keep evolving this analysis and this conversation. 
That's interesting. You, know, you, you set me up perfectly for, for my follow-up question with that, which is we've seen a, an enormous push from governments, particularly uh, in, on you know, very public podiums. Uh, uh, you know, COP26 was the most recent one. And we've seen governments talking tough and wanting to send very positive, uh, very inclusive, very progressive messages about climate change and about this switch to, to cleaner energy. But we've also seen, as you say, we've seen uh, a period now of rampant inflation in relation to what it's been like for the last 25, 30, 40 years. And we've seen governments start to make the kind of decisions that you and I, as guys who believe in free markets, almost expect of them at all the wrong points in time. So do you think that this unfortunate timing that we have this inflationary pulse now coming through that really is hitting the energy markets extremely hard, uh, which obviously bleeds through into food markets, the two places that governments can't afford for there to be meaningful inflation. What does this do to their desire on the one hand to really push forward with new green agendas all around the world versus trying to stay in office in the next election when people are struggling to feed their families? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And I think Jeff actually had a great, great answer that, you know, that at the end of the day, the politicians are going to, you know, re reflect the conversations of, 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 their, of their populace. So, and I think that urgency, you know, after, you know, more or less, you know, what, five or six years of, of pretty cheap energy prices, that wasn't as, as urgent as, as some of these other issues. Um, but, you know, I think, I think it'll be a big tell even in the U.S. Uh, midterm elections later this year, how much has that really shifted some of the, I guess, more, you know, extreme uh, measures that were coming through government the last few years. So um, I, I think it's a big, uh, big question. But, you know, one thing that I think that Jeff maybe didn't touch on enough is, is just how much the actual, you know, the, the the energy industry has really taken the charge on this conversation, and not, sorry, not just the energy industry, but the whole, you know, the whole uh, manufacturing supply chain, and, and and ultimately these companies are global, and so they are looking at customer demand and stakeholder demand on a global scale that I think many of the politicians obviously are not accountable to, you know, elected overseas. So they, you know, you know, you could have a very progressive idea about labor in one place. But then sit there and criticize, you know, exporting of jobs to poor people in other countries. You know, in itself is a little bit illogical. But if you look at what their actual incentives are, you know, they're not going to get any votes in, in in those third world countries, right? So I think having the global perspective of industry is is what's so uh, what's so fascinating over the last two years is I actually think that industry has taken the lead on climate change and governments right now are kind of in the back seat. So that'll be actually interesting to see how they react to that. Just kind of following that thread, it's something I'm curious to get your thoughts on, um, and that is central banks. You know, central banks have seemingly taken up the gauntlet here and decided that they are going to be partly responsible for solving climate change. What do you make of that? What do you think, practically speaking, they can do, if anything? And is the fact that they're starting to make this one of their main talking points deflection or or is there genuinely something that central banks can do to contribute to the climate change discussion no first off if you look at someone like mark carney uh who's really taken the lead in uh i guess the sort of global financial initiatives in uh you know net zero uh, policies and, and and you know scaling carbon markets uh he came from that sort of global central bank you know where where he was also sort of uh working on you know became sort of a global central banker working on you know shared problems across the central banks so i think part of it stems from that actual individual peer networks that that you know are probably involved in similar conversations but i think the second part of it probably comes from and again this is all sort of off the cuff speculation but i would say another part of it comes from probably a view that they had a lot more bond buying tools and that they might have them for an extended period of time through the you know the great stagnation or something like that I think the fact that that inflation has caught some of it, so many of them off guard, I think where their policy tools probably existed to influence this was, you know, again, buying more, say, ESG friendly bonds. And I, I just I don't see that on the table anytime soon. So it's hard to say uh, where where that'll come from, other than, you know, kind of general forward guidance and, and being part of the uh, macroeconomic you know, narrative. Well, listen, I'm, I'm going to change gears a little bit because um yeah, you know, one thing I don't want us to do, you and I, is, is cover kind of similar ground to Jeff. I want to broaden out the conversation, and and part of that 
is something that um, you guys did really, really well on, on Smarter Markets, and that is some of the, the conversations that seemed tangential to what you were looking to do, but ended up being actually some of the best discussions you had. And that's things like privacy, digital identity, and obviously there's been all sorts of uh, advances in these spaces, which we can come on to shortly. But, but talk a little bit about why you broadened out Smarter Markets to, to topics such as privacy and digital identity and, and how you see those relating to what you set out to achieve. We got that question a lot when we first introduced Michelle. Uh, and in fact, we spent a lot of time debating internally whether these are two separate podcasts and you know, would we risk user engagement by switching back and forth between the subjects. Uh, so I guess I'll get to some of my thinking on how these two topics actually converge uh, and where we think the topics of DeFi and energy transition funding start to converge. But first, it would be good to step back and talk a little bit about market information in general and how the evolution of trading markets is constantly evolving with the advances in information technology. You know, if we go back to Economics 101, uh, one of the first assumptions in a simplified supply and demand curve is perfect information. <laughs> you know, and, and we all know that information isn't perfect and data is very messy, uh, but getting more abundant, ever more complex part of our global economy. Uh, so in 2021 was especially fascinating when we start to you know really started to see the power of social media and, and call it populist politics start having you know really an impact on markets in a powerful way, uh, more powerful than perhaps ever before. Uh, which you know going back to some of the things that Jeff said about populist politics, you know the markets themselves are perhaps having you know an increasing role to play uh, when this kind of information uh, enters the market uh, in, in more transparent and, and you know more efficient ways uh, with you know the most you know voices and the most you know, sort of dollars possible. Uh, and so, you know, back to the intent of the podcast, you know, we, we think it's important to talk about and, and try to tackle the important questions in markets, but the market and information itself. Uh, but it will increasingly be important for traders and market participants to have a view on, you know, the structure of information in, in, in the market uh, and how this data and information moves uh, to ultimately match, you know, some, you know, marginal supply and marginal demand. So, we want to keep exploring, uh, you know, emerging new information technology on the horizon, and and we'll continue to have conversations about, you know, open source software revolution and Web three, uh, you know, self sovereign identity and its role in you know digital title transfer and you know and lowering co lowering costs and increasing trust, uh, you know, for market participants, um, but even some of the big underlying data issues of privacy and and data governance, and, you know, so putting my you know, ABEX CEO had on, you know, looking at ABEX specifically being a new innovative company entering, you know, the land of giants in, in commodity trading and infotech. You know, we believe we are doing some innovative things and, and our corporate philosophy is to open source a lot of the big ideas and big challenges, you know, as we talk about, you know, the big questions as we advance our way through them. You know, there's there's an old adage in, in mining uh, that on average, it's not until the seventh explorer or developer of a porphyry deposit, um, you know, with some of the large, you know, copper gold deposits, you know, it, it's not till the seventh explorer developer that actually makes money on it. You know, typically six juniors or, or you know, ex, you know, exploration programs, you know, you know, shuffled somewhere in, 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 the, in the outer regions, you know, typically fail, but they slowly increase the knowledge of the geology and, and the subsurface over time. And the extraordinary complex project engineering, you know, gets study and, you know, how to get the ore out of the ground. You know, but each developer moves the dream forward and, and lowers the information entropy and, you know, the uncertainty, you know, for getting that copper, you know, into the world and, and you know, increasing the, the, the capacity of our, our electricity grids. Each one uh, moves us forward a little bit. And, you know, that, you know, so that, that's the point of always trying to open source more and more of this information. You know, ABEX is here, you know, plain and simple to solve big problems as entrepreneurs and capitalists. Uh, and we want to move the world forward no matter what along the way. And this podcast is part of it, you know, letting the market vote on the information uh, quality and the ideas and, and get that real time feedback uh, as we work through them. You know, that that's just, you know, my personal view of how to how to solve a big problem and build a great business. So sorry. So I guess you know, getting back to your question, uh, I do think capitalizing the energy transition you know, with the hard capital and, and capitalizing, you know, the, the information uh, and the software, you know, systems of Web 2 and Web 3, 
uh, you know, the, you know, the revolutions, you know, we're currently living in. You no, know, we do think they're linked. And that's been on my, my radar, uh, for many years as being linked. You know, if you look at 2021, I would say one of the big stories, uh, or, or maybe the biggest story, if, if we look, look back in retrospect, you know, 10 years later, you know, who, who knows? But, you know, I think one thing was, of course, the rise of DeFi, uh, of decentralized finance, uh, and the NFT market and a number of things that were happening in the, in the blockchain ecosystem. And I think the, the, the interest for me is that can some of these new technology revolutions, you know, really accelerate and provide a different path than the traditional, you know, debt and equity capital markets? You know, if if, if there's one one sound that I take away from 2021 is, you know, that, that it might be the year that the efficient uh, market hypothesis, you know, officially died, right? You know, with, <laughs> with with some of the prices that we saw and everything else. And and again, this is sort of, you know, college dorm room conversation stuff here. It, it's stuff I think we're all trying to work out right now. But, you know, one of the questions I've been asking or thinking about it in, in terms of the asset class uh, of a token uh, in DeFi or, or an NFT is, have we actually moved to a stage of, for, for many years, capital markets, you know, were really just driven by debt, right? And and for the for the most part, like that's still the core of the the global financial system. Of course, our our debt capital markets. But really, what we saw is this rise of you know the limited liability company and 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 equities and 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 particularly over the last you know couple generations, you know equities have featured more and more prominent. But one of the questions I've been asking is: Is there such thing? Do we move from limited liability to sort of no liability companies <laughs> or, or sorry, no liability assets? And why would something have value if it's not a liability? And really, I think the answer is in network effects. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about ex- externalities from a negative standpoint, you know, ne- negative environmental externalities, but there's also positive externalities in pooling liquidity and in, you know, in sort of net information network effects. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that that this time is different. <laughs> uh, you know, I think you know, Grant. You know, you and I probably come from similar sort of you know value investor schools of thoughts that you know this time is never different. But there is a new technology that sort of extend this ability of having assets with network effects beyond the you know the typical capital structure. And I think that might be you know something that's just starting. I, I guess the the question is around pricing and how you value those network effects because at the moment there's a huge premium being put on every network simply because they can tag it with network effect. And I wonder, having seen what we've seen in the last year, again, you know, there seem to be an awful lot of threads coming together here. And if the pressure on rates to go up continues, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how a lot of these speculative assets that are are really in the very early innings of what I'm sure will be a very long game, but, um, we could find a lot of these network effects getting re-rated in terms of price. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, although we we try to, you know, produce these conversations that aren't so specific in time, but, you know, the, you know, if you've seen any, you know, the last few weeks, we've seen that in markets, right? We, we've seen a big divergence between, you know, network effect companies with, with actual business moats and profits really diverging from ones that have great, you know, great top line revenue growth because of their network effects, but actually have not proven to be profitable businesses. And again, I think the, you know, the very outer risk of that limited liability to no liability assets, uh, of course, are going to be, you know, sort of pure token type networks. The idea of profitability strikes me because you know, when when Jeff was talking about this transition and, and how to tax carbon effectively, you know, it was clear that Profitability in in the commodity sector has always been extremely important, right? I mean, that's always been the thing that has made and broken companies. They they've not tended to have too much runway when they weren't making money. A lot has happened in the last couple of years for the commodity producers to get their balance sheets in shape, get themselves into a much better position. Does the, the kind of extra push towards ESG does that? present another hurdle for them? Or do you think a lot of these um, these commodity companies have already taken the kind of steps that will, that will allow them to move pretty seamlessly as the regulation increases? Yeah. Well, again, I think the last, you know, call it 18 months, there has been a change in these companies and looking at, uh, at other metrics. 
But that said, you know, there's a big, big argument to be made that we need these companies to be profitable. And in, in many ways, you know, one of the big problems in, in Europe and in Asia this year, there, there's, it seems to be, you know, a little bit politically, you know, polarized, whether you're you know, pro-green energy or, or, or not. But at the end of the day, there's was, there was many factors. At the end of the day, the energy companies didn't, you know, had very low, uh, low return on capital for, for many years. That also influenced their uh you know, the lack of supply growth this year. So it wasn't just green infrastructure. So, I mean, I, I think uh, absolutely they need to be profitable. But, you know, one of the, the things that I think is is a little bit dangerous is we also want to try to make uh, make a lot of these uh, companies something that they're not. I think, you know, if you, if you want to focus on energy security, we need uh, these companies to be investing in what they're good at, while other companies are, are doing the heavy lifting in, in innovation and, and alternative energies. Uh, you know, one, one example is, is, is someone like Exxon, you know, obviously one of the largest energy producers. And I think something like half of their production plans for 2030 comes from investments that sort of started from, you know, after 2020. Uh, so if they just stop investment and don't actually continue those investment cycles in traditional capital, we're going to see a fall off on uh, in, in net energy supply, which again, if you look at the events of, of you know, well, ongoing events, but that started late last year, that's very problematic for the world. So uh, you know, one of my friends, uh, Arjun Murdy, who's, who's also been on the, on the podcast, and has a you know fantastic Substack, former equity analyst at Goldman. You know he he mentions uh, or he makes the analogy of Netflix wouldn't be Netflix if it was if it was forced to merge with uh, with Blockbuster, right? You don't want Blockbuster you know driving the change. You know there's a natural evolution, uh, and you want these these companies really focused on what they're good at. So when you look at something like the energy transition, I mean, I, I think you're right. You, I, you know, you want them to be profitable. You want them to be focused on what they're good at. But that doesn't mean there are things, you know, with a change in mindset and a change of culture. You know, one of one of the big advances on the environmental front the last year uh, was really, you know, the focus on methane. And so if you if you think about particularly some of the you know, low capital returns of, of the shale patch, uh, you had both environmental problems and, and methane leakages as, as well as low returns, which is sort of a lose-lose situation. But I think that the companies, you know, as they're more profitable, are going to be more focused on cleaning up methane emissions uh, as, a, as a big example. And I think there was a lot of progress there. So I, I guess the short answer is, you know, you want these companies focused on they're good at, but at the same time being, I guess, probably uh, more, more aware of some of the ne uh, negative externalities so they can turn those profits into solving those problems. Yeah, but, you know, Josh, with that being driven by policymakers, that's a very tricky position for these companies to be in, right? Because look, their natural path of least resistance is to become more efficient, to be able to produce at lower costs. You know, we all know what they're incentivized to do. And you know the existing environmental rules in a lot of the countries where the resources are primarily extracted from are only getting tighter as as time goes by. So they you know they're cleaning up a lot of the problems that we've had, particularly in things like the gold mining space for for many many decades now. Inserting government into that at a time when they're trying to make political capital out of all this, it just I, I don't know. And I, I don't want to harp on the point, but it just seems to me that is going to potentially become extremely problematic for these companies. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I think it uh, a little bit goes back to to the point of they, they need to be profitable and that and that will change a lot of the conversation. So, and again, it'll, it'll give them an ability to do more. So if you think about, uh, again, one of the one of the more positive trends in my view, you know, away from divestment, right? It was it was easy to divest a company uh, because it wasn't green if it wasn't making any money either, right? <laughs> so now we're in a in a different market. Will people continue to have this this major cost of capital uh, divergence? You know, because of you know certain certain metrics that that may be you know forced either by you know some of the large you know you know fund management initiatives uh, or or by outright you know government uh, regulations and caps. I think that's a that, that's a big question that remains to be seen. Um, but I, but I think one thing that has happened, and again maybe this is a natural you know reaction from the market that doesn't want to divest in in profitable companies, uh, is hey let's let's not look at this as divestment. But let's score people uh, around their improvement, right? So, 
you know, you know, again, I met, mentioned Exxon before, you know, that was a combination, you know, the, the activist uh, board nominations and, and the change of board from engine number one, you know, that, that I think that really has changed the culture internally. But again, that was a mix of, you know, upset shareholders combined with some of the new policies. So uh, again, it's having these conversations. And, and I think the market is having a lot of these conversations right now, which is, which is ultimately a good thing. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying What Are Smarter Markets with Grant Williams. Please join us in February for our next series, Demystifying the Carbon Markets, hosted by myself, Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Corporate climate pledges went mainstream in 2021 as CEOs and boards of directors responded to increasing pressure from ESG-minded investors, banks, employees, and stakeholders. Moving into 2022, These companies are increasingly focused on developing and implementing plans to turn their climate pledges into climate action and understanding how carbon markets can help them turn their good intentions into meaningful change. For many, however, carbon markets remain unfamiliar, creating apprehension over the potential risks. They have many questions. What are carbon markets and how do they work? What is a carbon offset and what types of projects produce carbon offsets? How do I judge the quality of these projects? Will the carbon markets be large enough to be liquid and meaningful to all of these net zero goals? In this series, we'll talk with the architects and experienced practitioners of the carbon markets, seeking answers to all these questions and more from the people who know these markets best. You can join the conversation on Twitter at smarter underscore markets. And now back to Grant. Let's let's come back to um, Web 3.0 and the tokens we were talking about earlier, because this is you know, it's it's sort of endless fascination for me in, in in many many ways, both the technology and the psychology behind it all. I just find the whole thing fascinating. But one thing's for certain, you know, they are becoming an asset class. There's clear movement in that direction. So, how how should commodity investors think about these new digital assets as an asset class? What what can they bring to that space from their commodity experience that might help them? Well, you know that that that's been an interesting one that that's fascinated me for for many years, and I, I know you and I have had a lot of conversations about you know Bitcoin and gold, you know in particular, because if you look at something like Bitcoin, that that to me very much is a commodity, right? There's a utility, you know, in the proof of work algorithm uh, and the and the limited scarcity and the way the way these trade, you know, that to me performs you know like like a commodity. It trades like a commodity. I think the ones that are getting more interesting again are you know. Things like NFTs or, or even like an infrastructure blockchain, you know, like Ethereum or Solana, uh, where again the, the, it's sort of a combination of this this network effect, but also uh, you know the utility that's provided in the, in the blockchain in you know creating you know security and trust, and so you know that that in itself again that's a positive externality uh, when you can increase trust in a system in a market in a network, you know that's a positive externality that should have some value, but it, but it's very different value than traditional, you know, profit and loss on the equity line uh, or, you know, a return of, uh, you know, return of capital or on a, on a debt payment. So I think there's definitely a need for these systems and these assets because of what they can do to sort of organize crowds, you know, organize the wisdoms of the crowd. You know, ultimately that's a good development in markets. But, you know, I, I think the world is very much still trying to figure out how to value these things and, and how to allocate, you know, capital to these assets. It's interesting. You talk about crowd trading there, which brings us on to, you know, like the, the hive trading we've seen in the retail space. What have you seen through your work in that space? Because it's, everywhere I look, it's it's interesting to watch, but tough to figure out what whether this is a moment in time or there is really some kind of change happening here. I believe there is a change, and 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 not that I, you know, I'm playing a little bit, you know, armchair uh, political economist or something, but I think I think what you're seeing, of course, is a lot of the political dynamics, you know, moving into the market. And at the end of the day, uh, markets have always had political dynamics. You move into them, right? So you know, you can't isolate one system from another. So you know, we we, we clearly see a lot of sort of opting out of the current system, you know, a lack of trust in current inst- institutions, and instead, you know, putting in investments in, in, in these types of assets. I think that's part of it. 
But I also ultimately think that there there is underlying technology that shouldn't be dismissed uh, because of, you know, thinking something like Dogecoin, which started as a joke, became so popular and, and again, was one of the big stories of 2021. Now, if I look at commodities specifically, you know, one of the things that, that you know, obviously ABEX has been working on, but where I see this, this technology being most useful is in digital identity, uh, is in really creating a digital proof that, uh, it, that someone is who they say they are, where it's encrypted, it's timestamped and sealed, uh, and it's secure, but everyone can access that timestamp and, and that immutability property becomes very interesting to sort of speed up digital identity. I know I always ask the question, when the person on the other side of the screen or the text, when it's more probable that they are who they say they are, um, you know, through through digital proofs, than uh, you know, analyzing someone's signature in a court of law, right? And and the other mechanisms we had for for contract signatures and so forth. It's just going to speed up commerce and speed up trust even faster. You know, we we've seen the rise of collaboration tools. I think I think you know the stat is something like you know forty five percent growth in in enterprise businesses of collaboration tools uh, over the last two years. And you know, of course, you know again one of the one of the companies that was really flying uh, in this in this last surge was you know, was a company like DocuSign, right? And and how valuable that digital signature is. But at the end of the day, that's still, you know, that that signature that is still uh, stored on a on a server, you know, held by held by DocuSign. But when we can start really having open standards and really having, you know, a very very high probability that yes, it was Josh that signed this digital document, um, that can speed up, you know, trust in in, in a commodity supply chain or or any any business. Uh, you know, significantly and reduce a lot of cost. So again, that's another part uh, that we're focusing on uh, is 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 how we use the utility of of these of these blockchains in a very you know specific way to increase trust and, and lower cost. What's the pace of movement like in that? Just because you know, when you and I first spoke about what you were looking to do, it was it was fascinating to me, and you know, I've seen the progress you've made. But have you found it heavier going, or has it been actually? perhaps smoother or faster than you thought it might be to, to try and move this adoption along? I always perpetually think, oh, it's it's one year out or maybe two years out. You know, even though I know the old adage uh, of, you know, it, you, you overestimate the five years and underestimate the 10 years, right? <laughs> and I think digital identity is going to be, or self-sovereign identity specifically, is going to be another one of these. But but I see the signs. And, and you know, very much like we started building the, the energy exchange focused on LNG uh, and carbon markets, you know, well before that became the front page news, you know, uh, in fall of 2021, you know, I, I've been working on that project for three or four years expecting this, this outcome. And I would say, you know, very similarly in the self sovereign identity space you know i started that probably four and a half five years ago and i think you know i think this year uh we i've started to really see some signs uh you know you, you look at um you know a, a number of projects through you know through microsoft uh and now uh you know the, you know the company formerly a square you know block and you look at um uh i think avas just just acquired a self-sovereign identity company so i i think this is moving now that still probably means uh, you know, that it's probably a couple years out where I'm like, this is the year. But I, I guess when, when you see the puzzle pieces falling into place, um, it does give a lot of hope that, you know, that we've been on the right track. For the benefit of people that aren't familiar with what you've been doing in the LNG market in particular, because it's, it, that's something that everybody, whether they are interested or not, is kind of being forced to understand a little bit better in, in recent weeks and months. So talk a little bit about the market, how it functions, and what you guys have been doing, because it really is a, a, a tremendous story. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's really about finding buyer and seller of last resort uh, markets. So, so when we think about you know commodity, you know futures exchanges, you know they're they're such an important tool in growing the supply and managing a low volatility growth and supply uh, to meet demand. Obviously, nobody likes volatility, right? Um, and and so you know you know not the consumer, not the producer. Uh, you know the uncertainty is 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 always the problem. So if you can bring more and more information to the market uh, to to reduce that in uncertainty, it allows you know people to plan the future a lot better. And you know we had a particular thesis uh, you know a few years ago 
that you know there there's going to be a number of different you know changes in growth and changes in volatility of various various commodities uh, because of you know this energy transition right we would see you know i guess eventually you know not yet but eventually probably less need for something like oil trading and a lot more need for you know lng or carbon trading and so you know we've we've seen the development of you know wti over you know many decades now and, and really you know people forget it's really only been a sort of a decade decade and a half that brent crude has been a, you know, a, you know, a very prominent global contract, you know, that it sort of took some of the, I guess, the headlines from WTI. Um, and so these, these commodity markets are always evolving. Uh, and and we, we think there's, you know, there's new tools that are needed, you know, for very specific commodities that, that we're lacking in the current market. So that's really what, you know, that's really what that side of the business is all about. Uh, is risk management. I mean, you know, what one of the one of the you know factors that that, that I think still people just really don't uh, in the conversations I've had really don't have their their head around is just how big this capital investment is. And it's not really in things that are very well defined right now, right? So, so you know, we're looking at something. You know, I think my former colleagues at Goldman had had a number, you know, something like you know, fifty six trillion, you know, needed uh, in capital investment to, to net zero, you know, which is you know something like three to four trillion a year, ramping up to something like you know six trillion a year, which is you know this is like adding China's you know to the global economy. Like that's how much capital is is going into this, you know, that, that needs to go into this effort, and in many cases in technologies that are not even yet proven at any sort of industrial scale. So, you know, to me, that's going to need a massive amount of market information. Uh, You know, that's going to need a massive amount of risk management tools. And so that's really what we're focused on is, you know, in the digital identity space is really trying to increase trust and market information. And then, of course, in the benchmark and and the exchange space, you know, really looking at at tools for, you know, for risk management, uh, you know, so so capital can be, uh, you know, employed, you know, very quickly. And and sorry, one one more number, just because, you know, as as I read, you know, sometimes I, I see these numbers, and I think it's just so important to think about, you know, maybe going back to our conversations on central banking. Yeah, actually, many many of these companies that will re- really rely on for this capex, they've actually been shrinking their capex, uh, you know, and, and research and development as as a function of cash flow for decades. You know, we used to be in the sort of 65 percent of, of cash flow was you know going back into growth, sort of a secular growth phase of you know of many decades. Now we're probably on the lower half of 50% going back into into capex and growth. Yet at the same time, just the energy transition capex is going to require something like you know year over year growth of three percent of global GDP invested right back into the energy transition. So if our if our net increase is three percent of GDP, uh, and depending on your you know views of inflation, you know real growth is probably only three percent. We basically have to invest our entire global global growth right back into energy transition. Again, that, I think those are sort of macro numbers that people still just don't have their head around in just how you know how big this you know this this challenge is. Well, it's, you know, look, it's it's cursed by the law of large numbers, right? When we when you're talking about fifty plus trillion dollars, it's very difficult for people to get their heads around it. Right? It, it it sounds like one of those made up numbers that kids in playgrounds throw at you. You know, it's 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 very difficult to to visualize that and understand what it means on a sort of bottom up level. I think people are starting to understand, you know, the you know the gravity of this. Uh, in fact, I you know just today landed uh, after spending a week in 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 you know the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And you know there was a there was a large conference put on called um, Future Mineral Summit, and it was absolutely incredible to listening to you know some of the you know top officials in government and, and some of the most important companies in the world like Aramco talking about basically reinvesting out of oil and into minerals and you know copper and electri- electrification supply chains you know as as part of the you know the 2030 initiatives. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is, is really going all in in making these types of investments and thinking about these types of investments. I mean, if I, you know, if I sort of if you look at some of the keynote speeches and some of the, you know, these are the same conversations we've been having on smarter markets. And and I can guarantee you, you know, when I was in you know Washington D.C. Uh, you know last year a few times, they weren't having the same types of conversations. So you know, I think the the world is really starting to gear up. Uh, to make these investments, and you know, as an investor, I think it's a you know it's a phenomenal opportunity uh, to be involved in this. This is sort of like you know sitting in 
and uh, you know sitting in Hong Kong and in you know 1995 or you know Silicon Valley and you know in in the 80s or something. You know, I mean the you know the path ahead here uh, I think is just. Uh, you know, as investors and allocators of capital and engineers and builders, uh, you know, this is uh, an amazing uh, decade and a uh, decade or two to come. You, you guys are trying to revolutionize all these energy markets with the way that they're priced. While I think energy producers are incredibly cutting edge in terms of the constant need to improve their technology uh, in the extraction process, the the pricing of energy markets has always seemed to me, and you have a much better sense of this, which is why I want to ask you the question, it always seemed to me pretty resistant to change. And it, it seems there's a lot of ways in which the pricing of natural resources could be so much better. How have you found trying to take that kind of change to those markets? Has it been embraced? Or have you had pushbacks from incumbents and people who just have a way of doing things that you just don't want to change the way it's done? Yeah, there, well, there's always an, uh, an institutional pushback and an inertia. So, short answer is: is it's difficult, <laughs> and and I guess I've been kind of in that sort of uh, trailblazing seat for a long time, and 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 I, I guess I'm certainly used to to taking those punches and things taking much longer than than I would like to. Um, but but certainly the dialogue is there. You know, I think some of the some of the things that we were saying about pricing externalities, you know, having differential pricing for carbon or ESG, you know, related metrics. I think that was sort of a new idea, you know, sort of a year, a year and a half ago that, you know, our podcast, frankly, I think really helped, you know, the zeitgeist and, you know, really expanded that conversation, you know, particularly, you know, Robert Friedland's episode and and Jeff Curry's. So, you know, I've heard that more and more, you know, even the conversations that we were having in Saudi last week, you know, during this past summit was was very similar. In that, you know, we're just talking about, you know, one of the big problems with a commodity, uh, and I talked about a lot of this uh, on the last, um, you know, on the last episode, is, you know, fundamentally, it's it's a commodity, right? It's it's supposed to be interchangeable, and and you price the lowest marginal marginal cost, right? But well. What has that done, you know, geopolitically and, and in our supply chains over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, even if a company is doing better and better and sort of cleaning up their, their local environment, reinvesting in their local communities, they're still getting priced the marginal, you know, sort of lowest cost incremental supply, you know, coming out of, you know, maybe maybe out of a country uh, that, you know, didn't have the same environmental standards. Uh, so in many ways, you know, you're, the, the resource rent is disappearing for a company that's doing better. And, and, it, and there's no incentive to do better in, in many ways, unless it's, you know, purely out of charity or, or regulatory, right? Like that has been a big problem. And again, if we need, you know, particularly the, you know, the heavy, you know, physical industries to be, you know, reinvesting, you know, tr- you know literally trillions uh, into, into cleaning up, you know, they need to have the kind of margins of a Silicon Valley company. So how does that happen? How do we start pricing uh, the margins so these companies can have the capital to, to perform? Uh, and that's been a big part of what we're trying to do with, with ABEX and, 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 our, and our markets. Uh, and I think that's a lot of, you know, a lot that we're trying to do uh, on this podcast as well is to really get that conversation started. As we kind of move into 2022, paint me a picture if you can for the people listening to this of the kind of the major changes that you think are are most likely that we need to watch out for, that the big shifts that you see in whether it be commodity pricing, energy markets in general, that people need to be paying attention to uh, you know, over the rest of this year. Yeah, well, I actually think this year maybe was probably a little bit um less sort of new information than 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 last year right I, I think i think there was a lot of people warning about some of the problems in the energy supply chain which again became sort of front page news you know by november or december in the inflationary talk and and again like the you know, ideas of of differential pricing, you know, and some of the contract work that the LME did, and you know, some of the things that that we're, we're working on. I think these are, you know, maybe it's not mainstream from a pure capital markets, but you know, specifically people in commodity industries, I think are are really getting you know getting used to these. I think the you know the big question, or the, you know, probably the big new information that's going to come this year, again, is is how do we use some of these technologies, you know, like blockchain, like these 
crowd swarms, you know, how do we use those to capitalize the energy transition, you know, very much like, like, you know, like Tesla, you know, as, as an example, like, how do we, how do we create the Tesla of copper mining, right? And is there a token involved in that? You know, my, my base case is probably not, but I'm just, you know, again, the point of smarter markets is not that I have answers, but we want to ask these questions. Uh, and, and so that, that maybe is something that we'll start to see, uh, hopefully, is some new technological, uh, you know, and sort of market in innovations to really, you know, uh, really accelerate, you know, capital moving to this space. Listen, one last question before we wrap up, Josh, and that is around the, the people in the business. <clears throat> it seems to me, with my exposure to the resource space, that there there seems to be like a new generation coming through the ranks for the for the for the first time, really, in quite some number of years. And there's a lot of very young, very smart guys running resource business now. And it feels to me like we are on the cusp of seeing some real change in, in that market. Are you seeing a new wave like I am of, of these you know, dynamic CEOs taking real old world businesses and modernizing them? Or is, again, is this another false dawn and the, and the resource sector is going gonna, is gonna to still remain with people of my generation as opposed to the next generation? Yeah, I'd, I'd say a little bit. I mean, certainly the cultures are changing, but you know, one thing very specifically over the last month or two is just the incredible amount of turnover, uh, and I guess hard to find people in any any roles, right? So, um, yeah. I, I'd say that's probably the you know the bigger issue is we're really you know trying to rethink work and what companies we want to work with. So, I'd actually say that's probably the bigger challenge. But yes, that that probably is some level of volatility which will come out the other side in in something you know something different, right? We're kind of going through one of those turbulent phase transitions. So and certainly more capital and, and more profits coming to the space will attract more people as well. But you know, short answer is yes. I, th I think the thinking is a little bit different. Uh, I also think one other thing that, that I guess younger people probably have that I'd say in the in the sort of the first part of the commodity cycle in the early 2000s, I would actually say most people didn't even believe it, right? <laughs> you know, the amount of gold companies that didn't believe in their own product, but all of a sudden are phenomenally rich, <laughs> you know, um, and, and and didn't really know where it came from, you know, kind of living in those sort of Canadian capital markets and so forth. I, I think that, you know, a lot of people were really caught off guard. I, I think this one's a little bit different and then it's attracting people that are really, you know, working on different different challenges. We need to do a, a podcast series on, on Saudi Arabia specifically, but probably the one of the most shocking things I saw. Uh, so, you know, I'm a Colorado School of Mines graduate. You know, there's a lot of Saudi uh, engineers and geologists uh, from, from the School of Mines. And, you know, I was at the Aramco booth and they were going through a digital core shack. Um, you know, and there's a, you know, a young Saudi woman that, um, you know, there was another Colorado School of Mines grad. And, and we were, you know, and she was walking me through the, you know, the digital core shock and the, and the technology, uh, you know, the artificial intelligence and the way it was straight out of Star Trek, you know, moving things around on a, on a big table, you know, and you can pull up screens and look at drill logs, you know, moving, moving squares around with your hands and it's sort of rendering and processing in real time. The amount of technology uh, that, that's also going into these sectors, I think, you know, gives me hope. And, and, and of course, you know, uh, you know, young engineers or, or, or geologists, you know, like that young woman at, at Aramco gives me a lot of hope. So, you know, sometimes you can look at these things and these are big, scary problems, but you always, you know, also want to recognize uh, the things that certainly didn't exist five years ago. Thanks for joining me today, Josh, to discuss your approach to making the Smarter Markets vision a reality. Next week, I'll be joined by Eric Townsend of Macro Voices, who will share his thoughts on what's going right and what's going wrong and how Smarter Markets can be part of the solution. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a license.